0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, this past week, for the first time in nearly four decades, the United States recognized a new national holiday. On Tuesday, the Senate unanimously passed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. On Wednesday, cheers erupted in the House chamber as bill sponsor Representative Sheila Jackson Lee read the final vote tally. On this vote, the yeas are 415 and the nays are 14. The bill is passed. Then on Thursday, President Joe Biden signed the bill into law. Most of us now know something about Juneteenth. The day commemorates an important coda to the end of slavery in this country. In his article, So You Want to Learn About Juneteenth? New York Times reporter Derek Bryson Taylor offered this primer. On June 19, 1865, About two months after the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, Gordon Granger, a Union general, arrived in Galveston, Texas to inform enslaved African Americans of their freedom and that the Civil War had ended. General Granger's announcement put into effect the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued more than two and a half years earlier on January 1, 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln." Since the late 1800s, African-Americans have been celebrating Juneteenth as a recognition of emancipation, resistance, and Black joy. Many other Americans were reluctant, to say the least, to join the celebration. The country as a whole was slow to honor the significance of the day. History professor Annette Gordon-Reed is the author of On Juneteenth. The work combines memoir and essays. It examines stories of black people who knew their supposed emancipation would not deliver to them the kind of freedom white people enjoyed. Decades of discrimination and oppression followed that day in Galveston. Black Americans were often attacked for even daring to celebrate Juneteenth. Professor Annette Gordon Reed teaches at Harvard University. She received a Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Hemingses of Monticello. She was interviewed here by Marcus Harrison Green, the founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald, and a columnist For the Seattle Times. Town Hall Seattle and the Northwest African American Museum presented their conversation.
1: Professor Gordon Reed, it is such a tremendous pleasure to be here with you today. I I know that even though it's virtually, um, this is seriously a a privilege. And uh, I know that I want to say yesterday, I believe you at the Dartmouth uh, commencement, uh, Dartmouth graduation. And I I, got to say that as far as i know most of the town hall participants and attendees are 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 fairly bright as well so you are in in very good company um
2: glad to be here
1: thank you well i do this is a i just want to start off by saying this is just a tremendous work and it was i've read it twice um once was to you know just just for, for for fun so to speak and and the second one was really to absorb many of the historical lessons and, and just the wisdom in this uh book you know to Thank my you. soul and this was such uh this was such a pleasure to read and i actually want to start our discussion today with one of my favorite passages uh from your book it's on page 55 in, in the, the queen gordon reed version as i'll say <laughs> today uh it starts with origin stories matter for individuals groups of people and for nations. They inform our sense of self, telling us what kind of people we believe we are, what kind of nation we believe we live in. They usually carry at least a hope that where we started might hold the key to where we are in the present. We can say then that much of the concern with origin stories is about our current needs and desires, usually to feel good about ourselves, not actual history. History is about people and events in a particular setting and context and how those things have changed over time in ways that make the past different from our own time with an understanding that those changes were not inevitable. Origin stories often seek to find the familiar or the superficially familiar, memory, sometimes shading into mythology. Both memory and mythology have their uses even if they must be separated from our understandings about the demands of historical thinking. So one, that was some brilliance right there, but I want to, wanted to lead into my question here. So we do know that yes, legal chattel slavery officially ended with the ratification of the 13th amendment in December 8th, 1865, excuse me, December 6,
2: 1865.
1: Mm -hmm. But um, you're the historian, so I know you were gonna correct me. But uh, (laughs) Juneteenth uh, has come to obviously commemorate the end of slavery uh, in the United States for many folks when Union Major General Gordon Granger, while stationed in uh, Texas made the delayed announcement that slavery was over on June 19th, 1865. So we, we do know that Juneteenth's modern day significance goes beyond just that one moment in that one city in, in Texas. Uh, it, here in, in Washington state, it's an official holiday. There'll be celebrations across the, across the country on Saturday, across the city at, uh, you know, everywhere, from Jenkins Park to Jimi Hendrix Park, to Skyway Park, to, to Rainier Beach, to mm-hmm. where have you across our city here. You know, as we sit here today, You're a decorated historian, scholar, Texan member of the black community, American. What significance does Juneteenth hold for you today? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, the significance to me is as a time for us to reflect upon, to think back on the feelings of the people at the time who learned that they were no longer going to be treated as property. Uh, All of the kinds of things that go with that uh, being sold, being given away as gifts, being treated um, as things, as instruments of other people, that that would go away. And we need to pause and think about that and think about what that meant to them and the hopes they had at that time, even though we understand what's gonna happen, that there was still gonna be a struggle afterwards. But the legacy of that, bringing that all together, it's a way of connecting us to the past and to our present. So that's the significance for it for me to sort of pause and think about this moment that's not just a Texas story or United States story, it's a, it's a story in world history, in the advance of human rights. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a struggle, it's a journey, but that was one step on the way and we should commemorate, we should remember all of those things at times when human beings make an advancement in human society.
1: Absolutely. Well, I I don't want to read from your, your book all night, even though I, I got to tell you, as a writer myself, I was very jealous of many of the passages in here. I I kept saying to my, uh, you know, to myself, I wish I would have, you know, written this. I don't I don't know what deal you made with the, with the devil to write this well, but you know, whatever it is, let me in on it, please. Uh, but despite the title, uh, this tremendous book is very much a memoir, not only of your personal journey growing up in Texas, but also the residue of the toxic myths that continue to attack and and be pervasive through our society. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so I'd actually like to to read um, an excerpt from the book um, that for me certainly exemplifies that. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, if people happen to have their their books at home, it's it's on page 26, but it says, and to your your point uh, about Texas, it says, all the major currents of American history flow through Texas. As big as it is, Mm -hmm. that is still a lot for any one state to handle. There is little wonder why the cowboy would be picked at the most representative figure. Divorced from plantation slavery, coming from a part of the state relatively devoid of Black people, the image of the cowboy on the range quiets the noise a bit and avoids the tragic element in Texas history the element that Juneteenth supposedly closed the door on, even as it opened another tragic phase in the state and country's history, as painful as it may be recognizing, though not dwelling on, tragedy and the role it plays in our individual lives and in the life of a state our nation is, I think, a sign of maturity. You go on then uh, to say that the past is dead, but like other formerly living things, echoes of the past remain leaving their traces in the people and events of the present and future. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're countering William Faulkner there. I want to say when you say
2: Yeah. That. Yes. I mean, it's. Yeah. <laughs> and I say that, you know, because I see that quote everywhere all the time and I know what he's getting at, but he's, he's getting at a couple of things. Number one, it's he's, he's making a what he thinks is a profound statement about it, but it really is Southerner white Southerners disinclination to move on <laughs> from their past, it's, it's almost a lost cause. I don't like the lost cause implications of that. And reality, I think there's a way to, to think about, in reality, there's a way to think about the way the past influences our time without saying that we have to be stuck there um, because we're not, I mean, we don't have to be stuck there but we have to be mindful of it and understand that it influences us. But to say that this continues is to say that the Southern way of life, the southern values of of that time are timeless. And you know, that means that black people's subordination and white supremacy are timeless, and they don't have to be. So that's that's what I was getting at there to sort of recognize the truth in what he says, but for people not to take him too seriously, because there's a purpose here, and that purpose is feeding into, Uh, A mythology that we're still trying to work away from, and that is the lost cause, Uh, the glorious South, the honorable South that defeated South, Uh, the romantic vision of all of that stuff that was such a nightmare for African-American people. Right.
1: Well, I don't want to, you know, as a fan of more of Hemingway than uh, than Faulkner, I want to I don't want to I don't want to dog Faulkner too much now.
2: No, um, no. I mean, he's a great writer, but, you know, but he did have that that kind of southern you know sort of romanticism about the war and about what the, what losing meant and it's the romance of 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 that kind of of the failure but not thinking about the future that in fact we recognize the past but we move on we do make changes
1: yeah, I, I I absolutely loved your quote, and and, and honestly, that that response uh, mm-hmm. to Faulkner, because I, I want to say that that particular quote of his is uh, you know seeming to seemingly stood the test of time. So yeah. I, I'm mm-hmm. glad that it was finally challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I, I do want to ask because that uh, you know you obviously talk about the sort of outsized role of, of Texas in the history of our modern day United States in terms of its configuration um I wanted to ask you why does in your estimation, why does Texas play such an extraordinary role in the history of this country in in terms of how it's shaped our modern society?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, because there's so many parts of the American story there. you have uh, the conflict between Europeans and indigenous people. you have plantation slavery, you you know and westward expansion, you have uh, the conflict between, Anglo culture and Latino culture, Texas borders, you know, a a foreign country. So immigration is a problem. And then you had Jim Crow after the end of plantation slavery. There's no other state that has all of those attributes and all of those things are part, have been at one point or another problems or issues for the United States. And so, and I mean, Texas, unlike many other places, Texas didn't have to become diverse. It was always diverse. It starts out with different people you know, different colors, different ethnicities, different languages, different religions, all in one place. So it's not a, it's not a journey towards diversity. It's always been there. And so that's, that makes it very American, even though in some ways I know people from uh, outside of Texas, see Texas as exotic, <laughs> as sort of weird. And I will admit in some ways it is, but the truth is it's sort of America in microcosm there. And um, that's what makes it, it's very, very, makes it such a very volatile place, I think. And dealing with all those extremes, dealing with all those currents in one place um, makes, it, makes it tough sometimes, but it makes it, I think it gives a great potential too. And that when I talk in the book about hopes for a place, you know, the hope is that it could realize its potential and bring all those forces together for good rather than for turmoil. Right, right.
1: Well, and keeping on Texas for, for a bit here, um, I was actually surprised to, to read that you, took a, a, you first sort of took offense <laughs> initially to other uh, states outside of Texas um, observing um, Juneteenth. Uh, why was that? Other than you know, I mean, I, 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 uh, I have an, an aunt and uncle who live in Texas, so I definitely know that they are you know proud Texans and 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 proud mm-hmm. to, to claim anything as as Texas. So
2: yeah, well, you know, I this was more or less when I was in college. This was a while back because I I just felt I'd grown up thinking that this was a holiday for. Black Texans, even in particular, Black Texans, that this was sort of our holiday. And it made us special and it made us unique. And then when I went out and found out that other people were celebrating it, of course, I hadn't thought about the fact that as Texans moved away from Texas, people went out west, most often to California and to Arizona and, and, and some other parts of the United States to the east. They took the holiday with them and said, "You know, we used to celebrate this, and so now we're going to celebrate it here." So the diaspora, the Black Texas diaspora, spread the holiday around the country, and you know, I that was really just a short amount of time that I felt that. Then I felt it makes sense because for the reason I said before, this is, you know, this is a milestone that this is an important thing, not just for Texas, not just for the United States, but in human history. Uh, the end of treating people like, like property. Um, Anytime, I mean, emancipation is a process, obviously Uh, with, you mentioned the end of the, uh, the ratification of the 13th amendment, the emancipation proclamation, enslaved people themselves, freeing themselves by running away from the plantation. Once the the chaos of war, they saw that as an opportunity and they left in droves and You know, so to have a day like that where people celebrate those moments, bring them all together and don't just talk about Juneteenth, but talk about the 13th Amendment, talk about when Richmond falls. I think they celebrate that in in Virginia, April 3rd or something like that, to bring those days together, to talk about the process of emancipation. You know, then I realized, you know, this belongs to everybody and there's no reason to be. Uh, you know, stingy about it uh, or (laughs) to think that it should be held to us alone. We should be glad that people are willing to celebrate together.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so I want, I want to ask you because I I know there's, um, uh, you know, I know there's, there's different thoughts on the the celebration of Juneteenth in in terms of, right, whose, whose holiday it is. and Mm -hmm. And it's, um, I know you you fall into the camp that it's very much an in, in American holiday. No. <laughs> can, mm-hmm. can you talk a, a little bit about why you feel that? Um, just a little bit more about why you feel that, I should
2: say. That it's an American holiday? Well, because it's, it changed life in America. I mean, it was, Texas is the largest state, was the largest state in the union. It was the most difficult state in some ways to, to subdue, uh, to get, you know, to get things going there in terms of, uh, you know, after the end of the war and with reconstruction, uh, there was a lot of recalcitrance there. But I, I think when you make a connection to places, that, you know, that we have a system of, of federalism where we have 50 states and a federal government over it, but we are one nation and celebrating the triumphs, celebrating the celebrating the freedom of a group of people who were the last, this is sort of the last people who benefited from the efforts of the Army of the United States of America because the reason it took so long for this to take place was that the Army of the Trans-Mississippi kept fighting. Most people think the Civil War was over, everything, all the conflicts were over when Lee surrendered at Appomattox in April of 1865, but they kept fighting and the last battle of the Civil War was in Texas. And it, ironically, the Confederates won, but they realized at that point that there was no going forward. So this is the end of an armed conflict that, and I think it's really important that Black men who enlisted in the, you know, the Army of the United States helped to bring to an end. And they are there in Galveston, um, mm. liberating Galveston, that celebrating the end of the Confederates Confederacy's armed effort to maintain that system is something that all Americans ought to, to be happy about and to, and to join in with. So, because it's not just the, it's the, the end of an idea, a pernicious idea, mm-hmm. the defeat of it at the hands of Black and white troops. And you see that with Granger and Galveston with Black troops and people making this announcement and what that must have felt like to people who felt liberated. That's something for all Americans to, to share.
1: Amen. Amen. Um, so I, I in, in reading your book, uh, it, it was interesting that I shouldn't say it was interesting, it was, it was one of those things that was shocking but not surprising where, you know, in my youth, um, you know, my elementary and in high school education and, and I was a kid who went to, to private school. Um, you know, my parents uh, worked, uh, you know, two jobs a piece to, to afford to do that. But I will say that yeah, Juneteenth was certainly omitted from, <laughs> from my education. Um, and there were quite a few others. Uh, 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 quite a f- few other incidents um, that you uh, mark in this book that were certainly uh, not discussed and and so I want to ask you, as a historian as an educator, are you hopeful that the history you talk about in this book can be routinely taught you know given mm-hmm. you know the backlash that we're seeing currently to a lot of the curriculum that shines a light on how race played such a role in forming mm-hmm. this country.
2: I'm hopeful about that. I think the reason that some of this legislation is coming up is a backlash against how far we've come. Mm -hmm. I think in talking about these issues in school, I would say that, um, you know, my kids and from what I've been able to see of the kinds of literature that's available to young people today, that wasn't available when I was a kid is that they're getting more of the lesson. They're getting more, uh, opportunities to learn about things that we are, we're different generations, but that um, I certainly didn't get a chance to know from my school, um, from my schooling. Fortunately, my parents were very, my parents were well-read and we always had magazines and we had books in the house. And so, you know, I had access to a lot of things that maybe others did not, but I think even today, today, there's more openness about this kind of thing. And, it, and I think that this is a reaction to it, the kind of measures that we're seeing. There will be a fight about it. Just because people are proposing this doesn't mean that everybody's just going to roll over um, and, you know, not teach things that are that are just part of primary documents. I mean, if you're talking about the Republic of Texas, and there's something called the Project, Project 1836, which is the the year that Texas became Republic and it's supposed to foster patriotic ed- education and so forth. But the Texas constitution talks explicitly about slavery and justifying slavery and pro- you know, protecting slavery. And it says you know that people of African descent can't become citizens, they can't migrate to the state and live without permission, all those kinds of things I mean, there's no way to get around that if you're going to teach about history and if you give students primary documents. I think the primary documents more than textbooks. With textbooks, you have the option of people editing things out. But if you give students the primary documents, they tell the story themselves. I mean, we didn't just invent talking about race now. Everybody says this is some sort of like some newfangled thing that we're we're kind of foisting on everybody. But people in the 18th century and the 19th century talked about race all the time. They passed laws about it. They had court cases about it. They had constitutions that talked about it, legislation that talked about it. So, you know, I I think there are ways, and I think that teachers who are creative will. Get around it. It's a shame they have to get around stuff, but I do think that the these movements are part of a backlash against the greater openness about questions of 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 race and sexism, all kinds of isms uh, that uh, you know afflicted the past.
1: Right. So, so it may not be a, a straight line trajectory, but it's 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 trending upward yeah
2: I mean, you know I, it's a struggle. All of these things are we've had this stuff before. There are always people who want to ban books or want to do things you know to limit education. but yeah you know in the end, I, I do think that that the push is always will be towards greater openness about these things because i I just don't see any reason to believe that people are just going to stop in their tracks and talking about what's true, right. Well, speaking about what's true and what's not. um,
1: In the book, you you talk about how much of the accepted teaching of American slavery and the history of uh, those of African descent on this North American continent limited the imaginative possibilities of Blackness. Essentially, Mm -hmm. what could be done by people in that skin? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I I, I discussed this in the chapter in which I'm talking about um, the first person of African descent that we know of by name. There probably were others, and I know there were others certainly after him or during the same time. Uh, Estebanico, who came. And predates to, the
1: 1619.
2: Yeah, yeah, who came to uh, North America in the area that was first what we would consider to be Florida, and then to Texas in the area that we consider to be Texas. You know, in the 1500s, in the 1520s. And he's with the most famous person. He didn't come specifically with him, but the most famous person who was in this expedition and with whom he ends up after everybody is, you know, killed off and dies down from hundreds of people down to four people. Um, Cabeza de Vaca is a name that probably most people in, uh, you know, know, in America. That's one of the explorers that we learned uh, growing up. And he ends up with Cabeza de Vaca enslaved by some indigenous people when they get shipwrecked off of near Galveston in that area, that general area. They end up walking across Texas and Mexico, almost reaching the Pacific Ocean, but get to the Pacific seaboard here essentially. And over a process of years, and during this time period, he serves as an interpreter sometimes between the native peoples and um, and the Europeans and I just will say I reflect in the book on the fact that we heard I heard about este- Esteban we called him Esteban that's the name they used um, but sort of in passing and I just thought about what if they had told the stories about you know his serving as a translator about his history um, that there were other people of African descent who came with the Spanish, who some were enslaved, some were not. Some left uh, the expeditions and struck out on their own. And the the genetics of that area, gene pool of that area tells that there were African influences in the area that was Texas, Mexico, Central America. If we knew that, if we knew that enslaved people or people who who were from Africa we're all over the world doing all kinds of things, not just working on plantations. That it opens up, or serving as a, as translators, it opens up your understanding of these people, making you realize we know it, but driving home the point that these were human beings, and who did a variety of things. That the notion of blackness as inherently limiting hmm. would, you know, you could counter that notion if you just had these kinds of examples. But what, we didn't talk about slavery very much at all when I was growing up. But when we did, it was always, there were people who worked in the fields and there were people who worked in the house. And that was pretty much the, you know, that ran the gamut of all of the experiences of black people, and that just wasn't true. Right,
1: I actually wanna follow that up because you, uh, later in the book, um, you talk about the great sociologists WV Du Bois, and uh, you talk about Blackness and Americanness Mm -hmm. and how they've been cast in opposition to one another, uh, Mm -hmm. a predicament created by the details of history and the desires of others. Mm -hmm. What has it meant for Blacks to claim Americanness while substantial numbers, you're saying this in, in the book, what has it meant for Blacks to claim Americanness while substantial numbers of their fellow Americans reject the ideas that Blacks can be true Americans? Mm-hmm. and that they have used their great numbers to make that rejection the basis of law and social policy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our current day, we're seeing that play out uh, in our voter suppression laws in places well, like Texas <laughs> and, and some other areas. How do we fight against this? You know, how, how, do we, how do we look at potentially lessons from our past that, that can help us combat some of this stuff that is mm-hmm. going on in, in our modern day?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we fight against it the way we always have. I mean, whatever political tools, whatever legal tools, uh, we've been at this a very, very long time since the Declaration with people filing petitions for freedom suits, sometimes successfully not, sometimes successful. Agitation, um, having uh, making common cause with allies uh, who were willing to take up the cause and fight together for it, whether abolitionists. We did it when the war broke out and black soldiers enlisted and fought, and when enslaved people left the plantation. I mean, we have a, we know how to do this. We've been one of the things that Du Bois says, another thing he says, and many things that he said were, were valuable things, is that African American people, he would have said the American Negro. Um, had a special message for the world because of the things that have happened to us. We've learned a lot about struggle. We've learned about resistance. We've learned how to operate under circumstances that seem against us. And we've been successful. I mean, the fact that it's not perfect doesn't mean that, and I don't even think it's perfect. It's not where we want it to be. doesn't mean that there have not been successes. There have been. And I don't want to dishonor uh, the efforts of the people in the past who work to make those changes, but we know how to do this. And whatever is thrown before us, we find a way to adjust and make, you know, and make advancements. And I, I think we'll do that now. I mean, we do have allies. We've always had people who willing, who've been willing to join in and, um, you know, to, Join the struggle and the fight for that, but we'll keep doing it. I mean, politically acting, organizing politically, voting, agitating, protesting—you know, making the persuasion—all those kinds of tools we've used before, we'll use them again. Yes,
1: let's hope. Certainly hope. Um, there's uh, a couple of images in in uh, your book that I can't haven't been able to get out of my head since I read it the first time. And um, thankfully this is a historical, is obviously a a book about history. And so I'm not (laughs) spoiling any endings here. Um, (laughs) You you talk about how white people in Texas is after the original announcement of uh, slavery's end, how many were incensed after that announcement and they acted violently um, to just the black jubilation that was on display from you know mm-hmm. from so many black folks, just so happy mm-hmm. to, to to be free. And you later contrast that with uh, you know many black Texans who, in the face of all this hostility around them, and it was a ton, who just went about the business of making new lives for themselves. Mm-hmm. And when they easily could have sought vengeance and released carnage, and yet they did not. Mm-hmm. And I got to say that when I read those passages, I couldn't help but think, you know, about the insurrection at the Capitol, obviously on January 6, and then all the majority, you know, peaceful protests, you know, that that mm-hmm. happened in the face
2: mm-hmm.
1: of uh, that that murder of uh, that that happened uh, of George Floyd, obviously, and, and so many others,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and yet, you know, we and we're 155 years removed from mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, announcement on June, you know, 19 1865, mm-hmm. 55, um, our. Longer than 155 years, I should say, mm-hmm. but that hostility, right, in rec to recognizing someone's fuel full humanity and equal measures of freedom and democracy, are still very much alive today. And so, I mean, how do we, how do we kill that, right? I mean, how does, what, it, how does the, the lessons that we can take potentially from Juneteenth? How can we put potentially effectively? you know, snuff those fires or those embers of of hatred out. Uh
2: But, you know, I don't think we can, you Uh know, all we can do is, you know, what we can do. We can persuade, as I said, work with allies. I really think that we're at a point and there comes a point when it's white people Mm -hmm. who consider themselves to be our allies who have to talk to deal with members of their community who live by hate or who feel that it's a zero sum game that black people's advancement means the destruction of white people, which it doesn't, it's not a zero sum game. I don't really think that we can, and we shouldn't be, I think in the position of trying to talk anybody into believing that we're people. Um, we shouldn't. We don't have to do that. Uh, the main thing is for us to sort of build, you know, build our communities, build our families, build our understandings of, you know, the necessity to, to keep going forward, and work with whites who are allies. And they have in in the past, uh, some in the past have persuaded members of their community uh, to come along. But I don't. I I don't. You know, I'm an optimistic person, but I'm not <laughs> optimistic about that. Uh, that's, you know, this is the notion of a racial hierarchy that slavery helped to create um, white supremacy, notions of white supremacy. Those are deeply ingrained in people. And it's not, I would, I would never say it's a hopeless situation, but I don't think that we should take it upon ourselves to think that we are going to solve that problem. That's a problem that whites in their culture have to work on. And they have been working on it. I mean that's I mean that's what happened in the, the civil rights movement in the South. There were Southern whites who said, you know, whatever it is I'm getting out of this, it's not worth it for me to treat people like this or to see people treated this way. And they made common cause. Uh, but that's that's what you have to hope for but i I don't know how you you can't how you rid other people of their 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 hatred. You just have to go forth in faith yourself in our capacities and our abilities to move forward along with allies and hope for the best i I don't think that you're going to people have to come to that on their own, you know I and mean, you can't make people feel certain ways they have to They say this about people who are addicted to things. You know that you may want the person to, you know, they're not gonna. It's not gonna work until they decide themselves. This is enough. Right. You know, this is enough.
1: Right. I I heard it said once that there is definitely a distinction between an optimist and a delusionalness. A delusionalness. I thank you for sharing that. Marking that distinction. (laughs) Um. I, I do want to turn to a story in your book about uh, a, a man named Bob White. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a black, black man who lived in Livingston, Texas. Uh, he was accused of raping a white woman, uh, Ruby Cochran, and uh, he was later beaten into a confession. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, the United States Supreme Court ruled that he should uh, be retried. Uh, during that retrial, uh, mm-hmm. Ruby Cochran's husband uh, shot Bob in the back of the head and killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, now the the man ended up getting off for, for the death of, of Bob White.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you write, it's a gruesome spectacle of murder to send a message, uh, mm-hmm. you know, during post slavery and Reconstruction, and you you use that story to um, in in the context of the book to talk about some of the the history, the uh, sort of um, I guess you could say. Uh, an inconvenient history, if you will, mm-hmm. that it is erased many times from what we learn, and, and and you go on to write that, what is the morality that would say that the oppressors' version of historical events should take precedence over the knowledge of the oppressed?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, um, I, I know we've been dealing with some pretty heavy stuff, and I don't mean to, to dwell on tragedy at all, but mm-hmm. I do want to ask you: How do we? How can we get to a point where we can collectively reject? a sanitized version of history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's there's so many people who say uh, the reason that uh, Americans don't speak the truth more is that many of us can't agree on what the truth actually is.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and because this is a young country. Mm-hmm. and I was talking to a, um, um, a scholar of Latin American history and we were saying that, you know, he was suggesting and I, I agreed with him that Americans fixate on, people in the Americas, North and South America, fixate on founders and the foundings of their country so much because it's so close to us. And because it's so close to us, the issues are really raw. You know, it's very, there's some groups of people want to believe that their great, great, great grandparents were all good and you know, right. did only good things and don't want to and feel guilty when right. you point out, yes, but you do know <laughs> that <laughs> they had this system of slavery or there was, you know, they removed native peoples I and mean, all those kinds of things. And they did good things as well, but they did bad things and people don't right. want to face that. And so it's very it's very hard to talk about issues when you don't when people don't want to recognize A truth or the truth is something that's painful to them. And they feel feel that you are, you're accusing them when you bring these things up, but they happen. You know, the Bob White situation, um, my grandfather told me about that story when I, when I was a kid and it wasn't until I wrote this book that I realized that I found out that that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. I thought that that was just, I knew that was just sort of a local story that happened, and it was, but it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I teach criminal procedure. And when I talk about coerced confessions and uh, the, the Supreme Court's adoption of the, uh, the due process clause as a standard for judging um, confessions, I use Brown versus Mississippi. I could have been using this case that I have known about since I was eight or nine years old, but didn't realize it until, didn't know about the procedural history until I saw it. Well, you know, that, that is real stuff. And I'm sure that there are people in the town who might not be happy about me raising this story again, <laughs> because it reflects badly on the town, but there's no way to understand Conroe, to understand that part of Texas without talking about those issues. There were good things that happened, but there were horrific things that happened because those kinds of things live in the memories of, of people. You know, this happened, the, the court case uh, was this is 1940. And, you know, I went to, I'm talking about the mid sixties when I'm integrating our school, my school, uh, uh, my town schools. Um, some of those people were still alive. You know, some of the people, their children were alive. This is, all of that influenced the way people acted towards one another. It, it, it's a ripple effect that's, that goes throughout the society. Waves and currents that, that just keep coming back. Mm-hmm. So it's very unpleasant for people to think about these kinds of things. But you realize that this history is just so so close to us that you yeah. can't ignore it.
1: Yes. And, and speaking of, I mean, you, you certainly, uh, you know, many times throughout the book, you caution against idolizing any human being. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. You, you wrote uh, another brilliant, um, in, in your brilliant prose, you, you say, people want the individuals from the past they admire to be right on the question of race,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no matter how wrong they actually were. So that admiring such people poses no problem. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that not many European Americans in the 18th and 19th century were what we would consider to be right on the question of race, which at a minimum requires believing in the equal humanity of African Americans. Now, obviously, there continues to be, you know, debate around, you know, what we do with with some folks who are supposedly were on the good side, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. will, uh, of the Civil War, and then also. Uh, those founders of the country like the Thomas Jeffersons who you wrote uh, extensively about it should be said and the George Washington's of the world and so forth
2: mm-hmm.
1: what what do you think we should do as a as a country to just have quite frankly more complexity uh, around you know these heroes I mean uh, these quote-unquote national heroes is it that we should potentially have a more sophisticated view of uh, human nature I mean not not to Idolize at, at all uh, Greek ancient Greek culture or anything, but, <laughs> right? I mean, their heroes were very much, uh, you know, extremely Blawed. flawed. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, no. very complex, and it was always an inner war in however they would present their heroes. Uh, very much an inner war between the good and evil, and inside the person. Um, mm-hmm. How do we sort of get to a more uh, nuanced view, mm-hmm. if you will? Of, of, well,
2: I think we're on the way to doing it. I, it, this is messy right now, but we're on the way to doing it. I mean, think about the difference between what well, people will tell you going to Monticello 30 years ago and going to Monticello today, uh, right. where people talk about all aspects of slavery at Monticello. Um, they talk about the good things about Jefferson, the Declaration, all of that, but they talk about the problematic things, the bad things. Mm-hmm. And so i think we're in the midst of that and we don't see it yet I mean, it makes all very uncomfortable to people now as we're grappling with this but i right. think we're in the process of moving forward that's the again the reason for the reactions you know that you know we're moving in a direction where people i hope will be able to think of people in the past with less uh, of a tendency to idolize people because it doesn't really do them as a historian. I know it doesn't really do them justice that these are people who had, uh, people who had, good points and bad points, who had struggles, who had issues that you know you're not dealing with forthrightly. If you make them plaster saints, you right. don't really know them. You don't really know. I mean, for historians, it's always about you're trying as near as you can if you're writing about people to to figure out what that person thought he or she was doing in the world. Why were they doing these things? But if you just come at them with your pre, you know, preset notions about their heroism or their greatness or whatever, you really don't get to know that person. So my answer is, I really do think that we're in the, in the process of moving forward with, as you said, a more sophisticated understanding just in the way you do you like little kids idolize their parents. And then you grow up and you realize, especially if you have kids, you realize they didn't know what, you don't know what you're doing. They didn't really know what they were doing. They were doing the best that they could (laughs) during that time period, but you have, you're able to see them as people and appreciate them in some ways, appreciate them, definitely appreciate them even more when you realize um, the courage um, that it took for them to, to move in the world. And so yeah, I, I think we're in the process of having a more detached and more realistic understanding of founders. and it and I think we we're at the stage because we're still a young country. We're still idolizing people or we're still and we were for the longest time in that that uh, mode of doing that. and we're moving out of it, and I think it'll be for the better.
1: So wait a minute, Professor Gordon Reed, you're saying that a hundred years from now, if, if somebody's talking about you and you know you and I, they might not look at us as perfect?
2: Yeah, the, yeah, they might, believe it or not.
1: Okay, well, I,
2: They might not.
1: i have to sit with that.
2: I don't see how. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, um, well, I do wanna get into uh, uh, some of the audience uh, questions here um, from our town hall audience. Uh, one of the questions says, what were the factors that kept the news of who had won the war and that slavery is over from getting to Texas?
2: Well, the factors was the, well, the main factor was the Confederate army, the army of the Trans Mississippi kept fighting. And so it's not so much that people didn't know about the Emancipation Proclamation, it's that they didn't have control of the territory. This was about, I mean, we, we sometimes forget that this is a a war, <laughs> there are battles here. And Lee, and we, as I said, we fixate on Lee and the army of the Northern, of Northern Virginia, which was the most important army, but the army out West kept fighting. And as long as they were fighting and they didn't surrender and the the Union, the United States Army did not have control of that territory. You could know that they're supposed to be free but until they came under the control of the army um, that they couldn't make that a reality. As it turns out, and and I say this in the book, um, black people in Galveston knew before Granger got there Mm -hmm. what was going to happen. Because there are accounts of people celebrating, and people are saying, "Why are you celebrating?" And I said, "Because we're free." So, I mean, I, and I, temporarily, this is closer to Granger, and and I'm the question is more about the, those two year periods, but the two year period is a period when there's still fighting going on in, right. in that ter- in the territory, and they didn't take control of it until uh, the beginning of June, the Army of the Trans Mississippi surrenders. kind of. Uh,
1: The other question says, why do you think that Juneteenth is really coming to people's consciousness now? Have there been attempts to make it a national holiday before?
2: There have been attempts to make it a national holiday before. I think last year it came within one vote or something like that. They're trying it again. I think the, the theories that I've heard, because I noticed in the last five years, much more attention to it. And last year, apparently it sort of there was sort of a peak of interest in it. And some people suggest that it was because it's around the time of the George Floyd murder. As people were thinking about race and were having a reckoning on race, you have a holiday that talks about uh, freedom and slavery, which invites you to think about the legacies of slavery and race, uh, the way the institution shaped people's attitudes about race. And so I think it was that people, the suggestion is that people are, were trying to find a way to have that discussion, to make it a historical, the historical, make the historical connection between what happened uh, with police violence and attitudes about race that were developed during slavery. So it, it's the, the timing of it uh, seems to have fit the, the sort of national discussion that people were sort of having about uh, the issue of race in the country.
1: Got it. And, and I know we're coming to the, the finish line here. It's, it's almost 8.30, Professor. Um, so I did wanna ask you, I, I've heard it said once that uh, prog- American, uh, progress at least in, in America is, is similar to um, the, uh, Chris, the beginning of the Christian Bible where there was nothing but darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as, you know as it comes to the, the advancement of specifically black people in this country and so and that eventually there was there's more, more, more and more light and more and more light and more and more light and more and more light. what gives you hope that the light has ultimately been you know overtaking the darkness and, and that it's the light that's been winning um, you know over the course of since the inception of this country.
2: Well, you know, I don't know that it's overtaking it. It's certainly lightening up, definitely. It's getting, it has been getting better, but it's, it's a process, there is, it's forward and backlash, forward and backlash. What gives me hope is what I said before, is that we've been at this a long time and it seems to be an inexhaustible resource. I mean, for, of, of you know, the determination to keep moving forward. And I just think we will continue to rise to the occasion. And, and that's my, I'm optimistic that every generation in its own way will continue to rise to the occasion. And if we think about moments like Juneteenth, where you have these people who know, who are happy, but they know they're in for it. I mean, they know that, that they knew who they were living with that this was not going to be an easy thing. And yet they went forward in 1876, four black men in Houston pooled their resources and buy land for the specific purpose of celebrating Juneteenth, Emancipation Day, as it was still called then. And the park is still there. Emancipation Park is still there in Houston and they still have events. And I've been to Emancipation Park. It's waxed and waned, but now in the past decade or so, it's been, you know, a huge, um, you know, events that take place there. So that kind of the past, the lessons of the past give me faith in the future.
1: Well, final question for you before we uh, cut out for the day. And thank you so much, because I know you are, what, two hours ahead or so? Three. Oh, wow. So it's nearly nearly tomorrow.
2: Yes, nearly tomorrow. (laughs)
1: Um, So what are you going to be be doing uh, personally to to celebrate Juneteenth on Saturday? Well,
2: one thing, I will be talking (laughs) to a number of places, (laughs) and I will try to find some red soda water. And uh, I won't be able to barbecue because we live in an apartment, but I will have some Texas brisket uh, in honor of, of Juneteenth and celebrate with my family.
1: All right if you want to send some of that up here.
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> but uh, seriously, uh, Professor Gordon Reed, it is an immense pleasure to, to speak with you today. And um, just thank you for, for all those who do not have this a book. It should be required reading on Juneteenth. I cannot recommend it more highly. Um, so just thank you again, Professor, for the privilege of your time today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Town Hall Seattle and the Northwest African American Museum presented this conversation with Professor Annette Gordon-Reed on June 14th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuw.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.